the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Coast and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. Welcome to episode 61 of Magic Markets, and it's great to be here as ever. Mohamed Nalla and I will be talking about macro stuff, which he always gets very excited about because that's where Mo shines, and he gets to sound very smart, and I get to just basically ask him questions this evening because I don't really know what's going on. So Mo, welcome. It's uh, always exciting for you to do a macro show, huh? Yeah, Ghost, it's always, it's, it's nice to do a macro show when there's lots of macro stuff to talk about. And the fact of the matter is that if you look at the last two or three weeks before us recording the show. In fact, last week, it was Fed week and we had the Fed's FOMC in January. And I think that was contributing to a lot of the noise that we saw in the markets. Uh, and so that's why it's it's really a great time to go into some of the macro. Let's unpack some of the concepts there because it's all well and good talking about stocks and talking about sectors. But when something as big as the Fed is moving, remember your risk-free rate being, let's argue, your Fed funds rate or whatever your US tenure is, if that's bouncing around, that feeds into all of your other investment decisions. So super excited. Let's, let's do this, Ghost. I mean, I don't know if you want to maybe lead off and say, okay, look, how are you viewing things uh, and then we can unpack it yeah i think from my side the importance of a show like this to people is that you know when your entire portfolio kind of moves in a direction it's generally due to some kind of macro factor so whether that's you know macroeconomics or something going on in the world politically or it's interest rates or it could be currency depending on what the you know the companies are that you're invested in so this is important because this stuff kind of directs all the fish that are swimming along you know, if you can imagine macroeconomics as the stream, if it's going upstream or downstream, it almost doesn't matter which fish you pick. You know, if the current is strong enough, that fish is going in a particular direction. And uh, none stronger than the Fed, Mo, I think is the is the point here. So perhaps it's worth, you know, for those who may not actually know what that term really means, you hear it all the time, right? And you read it all the time, the FOMC and the Fed and all the memes around it. But you know, we always assume this to be something that people are familiar with. I think it might be worth spending a couple of minutes just explaining what that actually is. I think, Ghost, that's that's really a great point, is that we take this for granted. So let's break it all the way back down for new listeners, people just discovering us. And for those that are familiar with markets, you know, hopefully you'll forgive us in terms of just how we go through this. It's just important because this is about sharing the knowledge, building the knowledge base. So first of all, when we say Fed, we're talking about the U.S. Federal Reserve. Now, that is the policy-making body in the United States. It's effectively the central bank of the U.S. Now, because it's the U.S., because it's arguably the world's largest economy, what the Fed does has ripple effects through not just the U.S. economy, but the world economy. Uh, if we can accept that the U.S. risk-free rate is arguably the global risk-free rate, then everything that the Fed does in terms of where they set policy rates, interest rates, uh, flows through into every single asset class in the world. It has an impact on 
the outlook on the US dollar. So therefore, it comes through into FX. It has an impact in terms of yield curve. So it impacts South African bonds and it impacts, you know, bonds in Japan, uh, arguably. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the Fed and why it's so important to investors, regardless of where you are, to focus on what's happening there. Secondly, the comment FOMC is the Federal Open Market Committee. Now, that is the equivalent in South Africa. You've got the Saab, the South African Reserve Bank, and they have their MPC, which is their Monetary Policy Committee. And effectively what this is, is when the committee sits and they sit down for a series of days, they debate what's happening in the economy. They look at all of the data that is available at that point in time. And then within their frameworks, uh, looking at their own data, their own forecasting models, they come up with what they believe is the most appropriate policy action. And so the last point I want to raise here is that central banks around the world have different mandates. They have different objectives. So if we look at the Fed specifically, it is a dual mandate of controlling inflation, making sure that inflation over the long term tends to average out around 2%. And they also have another mandate in terms of trying to ensure full employment. Now, the reason why I raise this is that both of these are very important in that arguably the U.S. economy is running really hot and unemployment is at multi-decade lows. So that's the first point. So, yes, tick that box. They've achieved, call it full employment. The second box they need to achieve is they need to make sure that inflation is not running out of control. Now, if we look at the most recent data prints and Ghost, you and I have debated this on the show, off the show in terms of how long does inflation, as it is now, as it's sticking up, stay with us? Is it sticky? Is it that infamous word of transitory or is this something that's slightly more permanent? And when inflation rises, the Fed is compelled to protect its own integrity, uh, its own credibility to start moving interest rates higher. Thanks, Mo. I think sometimes that the government here in South Africa, that country you may remember, they're trying to achieve full unemployment as opposed to full employment. But, uh, you know, it is it is what it is. We live on opposite ends of the world. And there's quite a lot of balance sheet on your end of the world, isn't there? I mean, the Fed is essentially running probably the world's biggest company, isn't it? I mean, how does that actually work in practice, that balance sheet and, and, and the way the debt works and concepts like debt to GDP? People talk about this stuff, but I'm not sure that everyone fully understands it all the time. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to try and focus on the aspects of balance sheet, specifically as it pertains to monetary policy. Uh, so we know, theoretically, central banks are supposed to be independent from the government. So let's, for now, assume that that is the case. It means that monetary policy moves independent of what government's trying to do and how much money government is trying to spend. Now, what we've had is... They're two policy tools, effectively. The first one are interest rates, as we've discussed in the intro section of the show. And usually, policymakers move interest rates higher when inflation is running hotter, and they move interest rates lower when inflation is cooling down. Similarly, if you look at growth as your dimension, if growth is slowing down, interest rates are cut to try and stimulate spending, stimulate growth in the economy. And if growth is running hot, interest rates are hiked in order to try and take some of the steam out. So it's a natural check and balance, a pressure release valve, if you want to call it that. Then since 2008, really, a global financial crisis, central banks then, not just the Fed, but we've got to now bring in other global central banks. And this is important. There's the ECB, which is the European Central Bank. There's the Bank of England, BOE. There's also the People's Bank of China so and Bank of Japan. Japan as well. Those are some of the major global central banks. And from 2008 to where we are now, they started experimenting with a new policy tool by way of asset purchases or what was called quantitative easing, QE. 
Now, what did this mean is effectively they went out and they bought up uh, during the financial crisis, they bought up uh, bad assets, for example, mortgage-backed securities, in order to ensure that the system did not seize up. And that went on to the Fed's balance sheet. What subsequently happened is, you know, we kind of ran through that. But the extraordinary policy has never really been pulled back. They've played around with it a little bit, you know, just before the pandemic, you know, the Fed started running its balance sheet down, and I'll go into how they do that. And then we had a pandemic. And from the pandemic, the Fed again provided this extraordinary support. Uh, you know, it's called, figuratively speaking, it's money printing. It's not necessarily, I don't want to go into all the complexities of the mechanics and how they work. Uh, but what happens is that the Fed goes out there, they inject cash into the system effectively, and they buy, in this instance, uh, government securities. U.S. Treasuries, whether that's, you know, 10-year bonds all the way down to the shorter-term paper, they buy mortgage-backed securities and asset-backed securities. And that's been the ambit of the U.S. QE or quantitative easing program. And they've been running that really hot for the last, since the pandemic, but in effect since 2008. So now we fast forward to today, inflation's running hot, growth is decent, employment is full. It's time to start pulling back the extraordinary policy stimulus that they've had in the system. And how do they do that? Well, first of all, it's not as though they are reversing track. All they're doing is they're taking their foot off the accelerator. So instead of buying 80 billion in a month, 80 billion dollars, they will then step that down to 70 and then 60 and 50 all the way down to no purchases. So it means that instead of adding to their balance sheet, they'll just let the balance sheet flatline. It means they're not shrinking it. It means monetary policy is still reasonably accommodative, but they're no longer going to be adding this additional cash into the system. That's the first dimension. And the Fed announced that. They also announced that they'll stop the asset purchases by around March, but around the same time, and this is really what's causing the stir in the markets, that they would consider a commencement of a rate hike cycle. And that is arguably a tightening of monetary policy, but we can debate whether it's really tight or if, in fact, this is just kind of easy monetary policy, but less easy than it was before. And the yield curves move in advance of that, don't they? They try to anticipate what's going to come from the Fed, from this monetary policy, and then that has an impact on stocks. So even though rates haven't been hiked yet, necessarily, stocks can still behave almost as though they have been. Yeah, I think that's a great point, is that markets tend to be forward-looking. So I want to, first of all, you, you mentioned yield curve. It's a concept we've discussed on Magic Markets. And for listeners that are just discovering us, you can go and search our archive on the website, magic-markets.com. Uh, you'll find it there. You know, we had a whole yield curve masterclass a long time ago explaining some of these dynamics to you. So if you haven't seen that, please go check that out. But let's first look at a specific bond. So let's look at arguably the US 10-year. What happens there is that the yield moves in anticipation of what's going to happen. So that's a specific point on the yield curve that moves. It preempts, okay, we think the Fed's going to hike one, two, three, four, however many times, and that yield tends to react. When we discuss a yield curve, it's about how does the entire curve react? How does a 10-year point react relative to a one-year point, relative to where policy rates are right now? And what you see generally happening is, in fact, more recently, the curve has actually flat, it's called a bear flattener. And what that means is the short end of the curve has actually risen a lot faster than the longer end of the curve. 
and that's called a bear flattener. And why would that happen is that the market is anticipating a move in the overnight rate from the Fed. So that impacts the short end of the yield curve. The long end is kind of priced in terms of what are people's long-run inflation expectations. Uh, and so it maybe moves a little bit more slowly. Uh, that said, an important point I'd like to raise here is that Surprisingly, if you go and look at data that tracks inflation expectations in the U.S., despite the fact that near-term, short-term inflation prints are around 7%, inflation expectations remain anchored just above 2%. So that's telling you that consumers in general, business, participants in the economy believe that the central bank, that policymakers will step in to make sure that inflation doesn't run away. And that's very important because that makes sure that you don't run into a wage price spiral. Uh, but going back to your point, yes, markets are forward-looking. They get really excited, and then they tend to capitulate and extrapolate at the same time. And that can be pretty dislocating in the short run. And the impact of uh, increased yields, as you said, you know, we've talked about this in a show before. At the long end of the curve, it affects the valuation of companies, especially those with cash flows very far in the future. You know, you can play around with this on Excel yourself try and take a cash flow and discount it over a 10-year period and just play around with some rates. You know, if you know how to do that in Excel or if you find some kind of online, you know, finance calculator, you're basically just present valuing a number. And you'll see how sensitive that number is to that rate. And the sensitivity increases over a longer period of time because of the impact of compounding. And this is the impact that we see coming through in companies that have longer dated cash flows. And that's typically your growth stocks and not just your tech stocks because Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, they all you know generate free cash flows today, not Netflix so much as we've talked about in uh, the free show and in Magic Markets Premium very recently. Even Tesla makes free cash flows these days as we'll discuss in Magic Markets Premium tonight as well for release this week. So those are the companies that take less of a knock versus the sort of Kathy Wood stocks that you know are going to make cash maybe in 2035 if we're lucky they take a big big knock as that yield curve rises yeah absolutely and i i think it's also important at this stage to just you know I, i've referred to this as fed flip-flopping and I'll, I'll tell you why i say that is that as we are recording this right now we had a very or fairly hawkish fed fomc last week and already this week we've had fed speakers they've obviously seen the market reaction and they're saying uh, you know maybe they need to emphasize the need for slightly more gradual hikes now why would they say that is specifically going to your point of the market capitulates it extrapolates it prices it in now it's forward looking and that comes through to asset prices very quickly what is the market pricing in now this is where it gets really interesting is if you go and have a look at it there is now a 199.999 odd percent probability priced into the market that the fed hikes its rates at its next meeting in march okay how is that split? Some people believe that they're just going to go with a, a small 25 basis point increment. And that's around 85% of people believe that. The remaining, call it 15 odd percent, slightly below that, believe that the Fed may even be more aggressive than that. That they might actually go in instead of 25 basis points with a 50 basis point hike. So that's telling you that people have taken that hawkishness of the Fed. Hawkishness meaning they think the Fed's going to hike very aggressively. And they've started to price that in. That's not the interesting thing. The interesting thing is, if we move to the May meeting, it's still above 80% for another hike of 25 basis points. If we move to the June meeting, it's still at about 80%, just below 80% for another hike by June. 
And only by September do expectations start to plateau out a little bit. So then people are saying maybe. So I think around 30% are saying maybe the Fed pauses then. The remaining kind of call it 70% are still expecting one or maybe two hikes thereafter. So that's arguably pricing in around 100 basis points within the next five months. That is, off a base of practically zero, that is a massive move. And the reason I want to contextualize it is we we talk about valuing stocks. But look at the real economy hit. I'm going to give you an example. If you're sitting up in North America and you've got a mortgage or bond on your home, uh, mortgage rates are arguably, let's say, around 3% right now. Now, if the Fed hikes, and let's say they hike by 100 basis points over the next six months, that 100 basis points on a rate of 3%, means that by the time they're done with this, in six months' time, and if you have a floating rate mortgage and you haven't locked in your rates, that your mortgage payment will increase by around a third. A third. People don't realize that. And that's just at 100 basis points. If they go beyond that, your mortgage payment might might go up by 50%. Now, in a system that is heavily geared, where debt to disposable incomes, debt to overall balance sheets, not just of corporates, of households, the entire system is so heavily geared. The ability, it becomes a moral hazard argument. The ability for authorities to hike this aggressively may well be curtailed in that they run the risk of derailing the entire economy, a housing market that arguably, yes, has been running really hard. And so that's the reason why I think, you know, the market gets very excited and they capitulate, they extrapolate. Reality is maybe somewhere between that. It's why the Fed will always put in the little disclaimer and saying it's data dependent. We're going to see what happens. And it's also potentially why, and it's very important we bring in other global central banks as, as we run to wrap up the show. It's important to note the differences that you're seeing between the Fed and maybe some of the other geographies. But I think most critically, I just don't think that policymakers have what it takes. I hope they don't <laughs> really to push through 100 basis points plus worth of rate hikes simply because the distress that the people on the street, the normal consumer, the homeowner, for example, would feel would be monumental. Mo speaks here as a North American homeowner and uh, not American, but but Canadian. So talk talk in your book there slightly, Mo, but that is incredibly interesting. And and that's kind of this law of small numbers point, actually, is that a a movement on a small number in percentage terms is a lot. You know, 25 basis points on South African interest rates is nowhere near as severe as in the US where the base is just that much lower. And I think that's actually a great place to end the show. You know, we've learned a lot about the Fed and, and the point is that this affects all of the stocks we look at in Magic Markets Premium. Yeah, I think goes. I just want to bring in one last point before we even wrap the show is that we look at the Fed, we've mentioned the ECB, we've mentioned the Bank of England, and both of those have actually come out and said, you know, we're not in a rush to actually start hiking rates very aggressively. And that's also because they provided less fiscal stimulus. Uh, in the wake of the pandemic. In the US, there was massive fiscal stimulus. It's why inflation in the US is running so much hotter than you're finding in other regions. And it's why their policymakers have to move. And maybe the ECB, the BOE don't have to do that. And very interestingly, China is actually in the inverse. China's recently cut rates on mortgages simply because if you looked at real rates, and this is the last point, real rates are the gap between what interest rates are being charged versus where your inflation is running. Real rates across the globe generally are very accommodative. Even in South Africa, I think you're around minus 2% real rates. It means rates are below where inflation is running. China, however, have positive real rates. 
And this argues that they then have scope and flexibility to actually move monetary policy a little bit more accommodative. And that's the reason why I'm not all doom and gloom, simply because you've got some of these counterbalances on a global scale to a Fed that even if they do step up in terms of hiking rates a little more aggressively, other central banks will probably provide some of that counterbalance on a global scale. Thanks, Mo. Lots to learn there. And uh, I know you get very excited about the macro stuff and I'm grateful for that because I always like to learn a lot from you. So let's leave it there for this week. This has been episode 61 of Magic Markets. I would certainly encourage you as our listeners to go and check out Magic Markets Premium. If you haven't done so already, you'll find all those details on magic-markets.com. That's where we look at a different global stock every week. We do a detailed report on it and a podcast. We're doing Tesla this week, which we are excited about. Mo has convinced me to do it. We did Netflix last week, so it's not always just tech uh, we do look at companies in other sectors just tech is uh, is very important at the moment they've all released results recently and it's certainly incredibly topical for anyone on a on a wealth creation journey and with that we will see you next week we think we will have a very interesting guest on the show let's not jinx it he's committed but we'll uh, we'll hope that he he's able to still do it next week so we'll see you then thanks mo remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.